Welcome to episode 126 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is good? Uh, not being covered in oil is good. Yeah, I feel like you should say something about that because just saying it like that sounds a lot more sketchy yeah. than what maybe actually happened. <laughs> I just realized that it actually does sound really sketchy, so I probably should clarify. Uh, we had like a major furnace issue this week in the parsonage slash church. So Monday we had the uh, oil company out for a routine cleaning. They were just kind of like cleaning out the inside of the burner, checking all the connections and stuff. And um, I don't know if you remember from living here, but whenever they do anything with the burner, with the furnace, like there's a smell of like an ambient smell of oil in the air. It's just kind of present for a little while. So we get home from work on Monday night and, you know, there's an oil smell and a little bit of like a burning smell, but that's pretty typical. So, you know, we go to bed. The dog was acting weird and we were like, just what's going on with the dog? We threw her in the cage. She calmed down and then um, wake up Tuesday morning and the oil smell had gotten more strong, which is unusual. Usually it starts to dissipate immediately. And so, um, you know, I get up before Ashley does, I was awake and then Ashley gets up and she's like, is it hazy in here? Like, do you see haze, like a haze in the air? And I was like, I don't think so. But then we called dad and said like, Hey, there's really still a strong oil smells or something we need to do. And he's like, well, go down and check the boiler room to make sure that there's not like oil leaked out on the ground. Cause sometimes that happens. So I grab the flashlight and I click it on just to like test it to make sure it works. And I could see the beam in the air. There was like smoke in the air. So I run down to the boiler room. I open up the door to the basement and there's like nothing. It's per the air is perfectly clean. There's not even a beam. I open the door to the boiler room and like thick black smoke just pours out in my face. Wow. So I'm, I'm literally like scrambling around, like where's the closest fire extinguisher. I don't even know where it is. The fire detector's going off or the smoke detector's going off. But I finally realized like there's no fire. It's not like a flame. There's just like oil smoke in the air. So what happened is we don't know exactly why, but one of the connections for one of the pieces they were cleaning, either like the seal wasn't quite broken or was broken or maybe he screwed it on crooked or something. But I think what it was doing was, was dripping oil into the bottom of the burner chamber instead of spraying it into the fire like it's supposed to. Because when you spray it, it doesn't create any smoke because it vaporizes or it atomizes. But when it's collected, it smokes. So it, it burned all that oil. And so we got home on, um, like we evacuated the building. We called the oil company. They came out and looked at it. Um, I actually had to go to the doctor for like smoke inhalation symptoms. And then we get home on Tuesday night and we come home and we realize there's like, smoke oily smoke residue over basically every surface in the church so we spent like three and a half hours cleaning on tuesday night and then we're like we both have this anxiety like what are we going to do like what's going to happen we can't clean the church we've got an aging congregation there's not really anybody who can help us you know are we going to have to pay for a professional cleaner what's going to happen so finally we get the oil company to come out and look at the damage basically and uh long story short uh, now our entire building is going to be professionally clean, free of charge because the oil company is going to take care of that for us. So it, it's really just, uh, there's all sorts of ways that God's hand has been sovereign in this. Like we didn't die. <laughs> we didn't die from carbon right monoxide poisoning. Um, our dog was fine. She wasn't injured. Um, there's no permanent damage to the building. Um, and our church couldn't afford to have all of the shampooing or all the um, floor shampooed, even if we wanted to. But now we don't have to because God has provided a way for that to happen for us free of charge. So I'm really encouraged by God's sovereignty and faithfulness. But it was, it's been a little bit of a rough week. The, the building still smells like oil. Like we couldn't have church here today. We ended up having church over at dad's uh, mom and dad's house. Um, so it was a little bit of a harrowing week, but um, but it's been good. We're coming out of it now. I'm glad you clarified that. So first, you were not covered in baby oil or olive oil. None of those oils. No, no we were like those those baby birds you see on the do on the uh, Don soap <laughs> commercials. Our dog actually, I mean, we have this little white West Highland Terrier. She was actually like tinged gray from the smoke and the oil residue. That's wild. Yeah, it's pretty serious.
Well, the second so. thing is basically everything got anointed. So there you go. Uh, sure. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> get, we're going to get some charismatic nonsense up in here. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe it was like the glory cloud. It was like the something the, like that. We couldn't minister before the altar because the cloud filled the sanctuary, except it wasn't like the glory cloud. It was just a cloud of smoke. And I'd like to think that the glory cloud either didn't have a smell or probably would have smelled better than that. Yeah. You mean like cookies or something? <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. Yeah. Like, maybe like a little bit of cinnamon, some nutmeg. It smells uh, like, I, uh, like a Starbucks at uh, during like the fall uh i really thought i was i was setting myself up there for you to jesus juke me on that one but you just came right back in with the freshly like baked the, cookies it was like the anti-jesus juke it was i'm gonna use that from now on like if i go into a room i'm gonna be like was the glory cloud in here or did somebody make cookies real quick yeah i feel like that's probably not a great idea now that i'm <laughs> thinking about it there's probably a little bit of like blasphemy involved in that <laughs> yeah i line think of so thinking. that's like a common trope in like every um like every fantasy novel, like at some point there's some substance or some some magic potion that smells or tastes like the person's most desired thing. Like in Harry Isn't Potter, like Harry they, Potter they make a love yeah, they make a love potion that smells like uh what what someone desires and Hermione smells fresh like freshly cut grass. Right. Which is like because it reminds her of Ron. I love that so. our minds both went to Harry Potter on that instantly. Yeah. Well, that's because we watched like 95 hours of it at Christmas time this yeah, last year. That is factually correct. I've seen a lot of Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, this has been the reformed Harry Potter cast. <laughs> so let's move on to the reformed brotherhood now. Yeah. So I'm excited as usual about having this conversation because this was actually born out of a listener email. And of course, yes. as we said before, we love hearing from brothers and sisters who are listening and joining in, in this conversation because oftentimes... They bring things to lights that I think you or I have either not thought of or haven't thought of in like the particular way in which they're experiencing it. And so really the, the question tonight that I want to talk about is, is kind of a simple question, but it's, is there a particular order in which regeneration, faith, and repentance must occur? Or in other words, ah. how do these three interplay? Is there a logical order to them? And I think at the top, that sounds like kind of a very academic question in some respects like you know some might say why try to parse out all those things and try to determine precisely when they occur or how they interrelate with one another but i think the question that the listener posed to us is really worth asking and it's very nuanced and i think it's sensitive in some respects because it, it comes out of a practical situation so yeah someone wrote to us describing a situation that occurred in their church where an openly proud and practicing homosexual is baptized and this listener confronted the pastor and elders expressing some concern that the person who is being baptized was in unrepentant sin and therefore they shouldn't be baptized. I mean, this obviously is a cradle Baptist church. And in response, the church leaders affirmed that the person was saved because they had come forward on a Sunday wanting to place their faith in Jesus. And in fact, the right. pastor argued that someone can be regenerated and have faith, but not repent. So the argument was that repentance can come at a later undetermined time when the person finally understands the gravity of their sin. So here is like the question at the top there, is there a particular order? And you can see how like that is the basis upon which the outworkings of this kind of complicated in some respects situation is un unfolding. So I, th yeah. I figured this is a great question because this is precisely what we've been talking about for as long as we've been talking about stuff. And that is yeah. that theology matters, that the presuppositions, the way that we understand the scriptures, the way that we understand the order of salutis, you cannot help but work that out in how you behave. And here's a prime example of that. So where would you like to start on this one? Well, we, we've talked about this, or at least subjects sort of circulating around this several times in the past, right? So we, during our uh, systematic theology series, we talked about the Ordo Salutis and kind of like big picture, non-specific terms of just sort of here's the general order that things happen, right? Regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, all of these things happen in a sort of defined order. Um, but we didn't get into the nitty gritty. And then we, um, we, a little bit later, we started to talk about this when we looked at the Lordship Salvation controversy. And we talked about how um, the main critique or concern that um, Reformed people have with uh, not only Obviously, there's concerns with the anti-lordship camp, but the concerns with the lordship camp, of John MacArthur's camp, 
is that it confuses where repentance falls in that it makes repentance a component part of faith. But even if you still retain repentance as something separate, there's disagreement both outside of the Reformed world and within the Reformed world as to whether repentance comes before faith or whether it become comes after faith right. or whether it is, or sorry, before justification or after justification or whether it's somehow logically um, simultaneous with repentance and faith. If those two things are logically the same or if they are uh, logically different. And uh, it's important to, to remember that what we're talking about is not a temporal sequence. It's a logical sequence. And the right. reason I say that is that uh, the Reformed, uh, confessionally speaking, affirm that all of these things happen at the same moment in time. So there's no such thing as a person who is regenerated, who at any moment of after regeneration does not have faith. And there's no point at which someone trusts Jesus Christ for their salvation, who also does not at that same moment repent of their sins, turn from it and walk to Jesus. So um, the listener's question on one sense is sort of easy to answer in that the answer is no. There's no such thing as an unrepentant Christian. There's no such right. thing as a Christian who trusts Jesus, but still clings to their sin and refuses to release those to Jesus to be forgiven and to seek righteousness and holiness. But it does give way to sort of a broader discussion about the order that these things happen. And when we talk about order, logical order is something that's really difficult to get your head around because we almost, we have to sort of step into this sequence thinking that lends itself really well to thinking about it in terms of time. Like there's moment one and moment two and moment two is always after moment one. But when we're talking about logical orders, what we're really talking about is the relationships between different concepts. What is dependent on other things? And I think that'll become clear as we sort of talk through this a little bit more. That's a great way to kind of push us into that because what I love about this question is it's trying to get a little bit deeper in this, what I think is a relationship between repentance and faith. And I think sometimes those two get conflated and sometimes they get confused in separation. There, there has to be a distinction, but like you said, there is in some ways, uh, there, there's a strong relation between the two. So yeah. when I think when confronted with like the immensity of God's holiness, the reality of sin should really frighten and sicken us. Yeah. And at the same time, the redemptive work of Christ should really thrill us to the core. So together, the truth of those biblical doctrines should really provoke a desperate question in the sinner's heart. And that's what we see in the scriptures. So it's the same question that plagued those who heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which is why in Acts 2, their response is like they were pierced to the heart and they said, you know, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's response is repent and right. be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it seems to me like the truth of the gospel does demand a response from the sinner. And I think this is where there's this wonderful kind of bridge or arc between trying to understand what is really saving faith and repentance and regeneration. Because it seems to me, as the scripture defines it, passive indifference really isn't an option. Either believers right. will reject the facts of the gospel and they're going to carry on with their rebellious lives, or they will desperately cry out for salvation that's found only in Christ. So I think just as it's vital, just as vital as knowing the facts of the gospel, God's people need to thoroughly understand the response to the gospel that the scripture demands. I yeah. think there's clearly some confusion, at least in the part of this leadership here. I, I say that as humbly as I can, that there's, I think, as much as any point, the significance of this is a hindrance to the ministry in that particular church because there is confusion. Yeah. Yeah. And another element of this that we talked about, right, when your friend Ben came on the show, we talked about this concept of higher life or like second blessing Christianity, Yeah, where there's there's this initial stage of Christianity where it's kind of like, this is the the bare minimum. This is the, the cost of entry is sort of this bare intellectual ascent and some sort of semblance of an acknowledgement of your sin. And then there's this second tier where like you really, really sort of enter the Christian life. And, and it's kind of like... Like that's what's going on here is that, well, there's, there's this initial profession of faith and that's what gets you in. And then there's, then there's the next level where you actually sort of walk away from your sin, right. which really falls more on the side of sort of the anti-lordship teaching, um, sort of Kazakh higher life theology. But I do want to say there's no such thing as a Christian who has fully completely repented of all of their sins. So we should be cautious. I find it difficult to believe that a person who um, who is properly 
oriented to the faith in terms of proper preaching and proper um, proper law gospel preaching, I find it difficult to believe that a person of of um, that persuasion, a person who is still living in unrepentant homosexual sin, I find it difficult to believe that that person could be truly repentant and just not have repented of that sin. But it's not impossible, right? Because we all, all of us, when we came to faith, we had certain sins that were sins that we were not yet repentant of because we didn't know that we needed to be repentant of that. So for example, um, I have strong convictions about the second commandment, which includes mental images of Christ. But for much of my Christian life, I fully believed um, there, there's a particular, and I can actually, uh, I hate that this is happening, but it demonstrates the point. There's a particular image of Christ that I really latched onto when I was a new Christian. If I described it, people would recognize. I'm not going to do that, but if I did, people would recognize it. And I latched onto that, and that became an idol for me. So for for most of my Christian life, probably more than 50% of my Christian life at this point, I, I was an idolater. Is, is my conviction now. So we should be cautious to say that just because a person has not repented of this particular sin over against other particular sins, that they are not repentant. So it's, it's possible that this person that was baptized is truly repentant, that they've, they've truly come to conviction of their sin. Um, and they just haven't yet come to the knowledge of that particular sin's sinfulness. Um, I find it hard to believe in our day and age, though, that that isn't something they would be aware of as something that Christians are opposed to. Right. Um, I find it hard to think that that's like a sin of ignorance, that they don't, they just don't realize that the Bible says that. Um, and that that's where it's incumbent on the pastor and the ministers of this church exactly. to say, hey, you know, we, we, we see that you're genuinely convicted of your sin. We see that you're repentant. But there's still this thing in your life, and we're not going to baptize you until you recognize that this particular sin is serious and that you have to walk away from it before we can truly affirm your confession of faith. Right. This is true. We can never be repentant enough, right? I mean, there's always stuff in our lives that either we are ignorant to, you know, as David prays, that he would be forgiven for both the sins of commission and the sins of omission. And so repentance is like the air we breathe. It should be with every breath, ideally. And yet even that would be insufficient. I think here what's interesting is the listener's particular choice of words about the proud expression of that lifestyle. Right. And clearly in the conversation with their leadership, as you already noted, there was, it seems, some defensiveness. So there was a sense already that perhaps uh, they they were aware of something, but we're going to leave that, I guess, up to the person. Something that the, the scriptures certainly had spoken to would be inappropriate for a Christian to partake of, somebody who was truly regenerate and um, was undertaking baptism. And yet at the same time, they're basically kind of, I guess, punting that to say, well, God will take care of that in his time. And that's not yeah. for us to really determine when. It's clear, again, if there's somebody living in that public lifestyle, you're right. It is certainly the responsibility of leadership to say, you know, it because you have made this profession of faith and we want to move forward uh, praying that God will honor that profession and draw you onto himself, that part of that process is a turning. I mean, that's what repentance means. That's why I think this question is is really right on. I mean, even beyond this, I want to make note of something, and I'm not trying to go all Paul Washer, but I have a feeling this is going to go that direction. So (laughs) just, I know that this is probably preaching the choir because most people are, are going to throw their fists up in agreement with me on this, I would presume. But you know, for the sake of the talking about this, I mean, Scripture makes no mention of like walking an aisle, praying a prayer, signing right. a card. So, I mean, God's word is interesting, never points back to some kind of isolated event or an emotional decision for assurance of salvation. I mean, there's just no biblical basis for that kind of decisional regeneration. And Jesus isn't knocking at the door of the sinner's heart, hoping that he will let him in. Uh, that passage is so often misapplied. He doesn't need our acceptance. We really need his. So I'm really even astounded that a pastor would kind of invoke that kind of logic, so to speak, that, well, somebody yeah. came forward and made a procession, procession, profession, not procession, a procession to a profession, maybe. <laughs> and because of that, that's what we're going to base everything on. Like, that's definitely the cart before the horse, because I think that true saving faith is the sinner really recognizing, like we've already said, his own hopeless condition, and then trusting Christ as his righteous and sub- sacrificial substitute, really the only possible means of escaping God's just wrath. But not only, I think, what's interesting to me when I look at the scriptures, not only does God provide the means of salvation, which I think most Reformed people would say, absolutely, like right on, beat that drum, but he bestows actually the very ability to lay hold of that salvation through faith right. in his son. So right. since God is the progenitor of saving faith, 
my hypothesis is like that faith, which simultaneously recognizes the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God will necessarily result in repentance. Right. It, it can't oh, yeah, be any sure. other way. So re- repentance, I don't want to say is a necessary prerequisite because that sounds like a temporal order, but no person can be saved without true repentance, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And one of the things that I think is um, probably surprising to most people is that the word regeneration does not appear in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So when, oh, when the Westminster divines want to talk about what we call regeneration, and there's all sorts of historical reasons for it. Um, regeneration in the Middle Ages um, was synonymous with what we call sanctification. So that, that renovative um, increasing in holiness was called regeneration. You even see this in Calvin, where Calvin starts to talk about what we would call sanctification, and he's using the term regeneration. So they avoid that term, I think, largely for purposes of clarity. They don't want to confuse the matter by um, using a term that has multiple meanings. But they they talk about effectual calling. So I just want to read, um, let's see, question... Let's do question 29, and I'm going to say through question 31. So question 29, this is the Westminster Shorter. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. So right out of the gate when they're talking about redemption... They're making it clear that we are we are brought into participation in this redemption. We're we're given the benefits of this. We're made partakers of the benefits by God's work. The Holy Spirit's work is what does this. Question 30 says, how doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer is the Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting to us Christ uh, Christ in our effectual calling. And so effectual calling is, it's going to define in a second here, but we're united to Christ in our effectual calling. And that's really important because what we see is what effectual calling is, is more than just justification. It's more than just regeneration. It's more than just a profession of faith. And it says here, question 31, what is effectual calling? Answer, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, right? So we know that the divines distinguish between an act, which is a once momentary change of status, right? Justification and adoption are acts. Works are things that God does over time. So God, uh, by the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, which we would probably say um, is what what Calvin calls contrition, right? We're made aware of the fact that we're sinners. We're made aware of the fact that we are in misery because of it. Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, right? So we are given certain intellectual data. Um, It's probably not accurate to say that it's like a data download, but there's a realization, right? There's information that we are given and that information becomes true to us. Renewing our wills. So we're given a will that is um, oriented towards Christ, towards God. And then um, he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And then I'm going to go through question 32. What are the benefits that they who are effectually called partake of in this life? And this is what's important is justification, adoption, and sanctification and the several benefits which in this life accompany or flow from them. And what we'll see, we're not going to go there, but sanctification has as part of its um, part of its components is this, uh, this hatred of sin and this ability to grow more and more in righteousness and die more and more to sin. And so effectual calling encompasses this whole act of God, this whole work of God in which he, he takes our, broken, dead selves, he brings them to life, and then he turns them a different direction. And now that we're turned that direction, we will invariably walk that direction towards Jesus Christ. So it's it's not super clear the difference between contrition and repentance in this um, these questions, but the fact of the matter is that anyone who is regenerated, anyone who's effectually called, who is united to Christ in their effectual calling will hate their sin and will recognize the misery of the estate that they were in and will necessarily grow in holiness. If you're not growing in holiness, then you have no grounds whatsoever to claim that you are effectually called or united to Christ because the, the scriptures promise us that all those for whom God started a good work, and you could probably insert in parentheses in regeneration, 
he will certainly finish that good work in sanctification and glorification, right? So we have to recognize that that progression is foolproof. If there's no progression in holiness, if there's no growth in holiness, and I don't mean like every day has to be a little bit better. There's all people have setbacks, um, but if there's no growth in holiness, it may be the case that you are saved, that you're regenerated and, and sanctified and justified. That may be the case, but we really have no grounds on which to claim that. And so that's something to be right. concerned about. Yeah. So if we think about this in reverse, the person who is not united to Christ, the one who is not being drawn to him is the one who has not only is the natural man, of course, who has not even no sensibilities about these spiritual things, but has no desire to participate in them. Right. Has no sense of the essentially like the the holiness of God and the heavy weight of sin. And so that must mean then the opposite has to be true, right? That faith right. is not simply an acknowledgement of Christ, because many people acknowledge Christ. It's an act of dependence on Him, born out in a life of the believer in the form of repentance. And I think. For myself and perhaps many other Christians, I think one of the things that God graciously does in our lives by way of sanctification is he starts to bifurcate and chip away at the ways we've conflated being sorry and what it means to repent. Yeah. Because scripture often refers to faith and repentance in tandem, and the two correspond, I think, closely in the life of the believer. Turning away from sin and repentance is the natural extension of turning to Christ in faith. So in the Old Testament, we had this word for repentance, like shuv, which is just fun. And you know, when you read like Psalm 80 and David's talking about a prayer offered to God where he's saying, turn us, turn us, O God, that we may be saved or restore us that we may be saved. You know, in other words, the word shuv in Hebrew is, of course, like to turn, to turn from sin, to turn unto God, which you, you've already said. So that's like a specific action verb. It's empowered by God, but the heart of repentance is turning. And by the right. time you get to the New Testament... You know, when you're looking at the word metanoia, which is the word used there for repentance, in the sense that Jesus used it, repentance calls for a repudiation of the old life and a turning right. to God for salvation. So in the context of this question, that's what we should expect to see, especially, I think, for sin that is uh, public and large scale in a sense. I hate to use that word because all sin is sin before God, but in the sense that there is direct language that really the pastors and the leadership should be applying onto this person that says, True saving faith looks like a repudiation of this lifestyle. And I would expect that if, if I were an unbeliever going before a pastor or an elder and saying, I, I think I'm, I, I'm really feeling called by God. I want to turn toward him and away from my sin, that they should come at me with that, with this confrontation saying, here's the way in which you should do this in your life. Yeah. And so cl- clearly that didn't happen. But, but I think we're saying that repudiation of the old life is, and it, like, I guess the question would be, Maybe this is unfair to ask, but I'm just going to ask it to you because we can. Who else is listening to this? Um, (laughs) The question is, is there some sin so grand that we would expect that God would confront that without reservation right away at the time of conversion, so to speak? Do you know what I'm getting at? I do. And and that's where it's a tricky question, right? Because... Oh, I know. That's why um, I asked you. So it is the case that some sins are worse than others, Right. Um, the the reform tradition has always affirmed that some sins are temporally more grave, more grievous than others. Um, right. And, and so when you're talking about like, well, is there a sin that's so heinous that God would always invariably confront it immediately upon regeneration? And the answer that is, is yes. Question. But that sin right. is not necessarily what we might think, right? We might think that homosexuality is that sin that would always invariably be confronted. Um, But in reality, the sin that's always confronted is our idolatry and our hatred for God. Right. Right. So, and and so that's the first table of the law. And that's the greatest commandment is that in our conversion, God always addresses us and says, you will love me or you will be condemned. And so you have that choice to either um, persist in the sin of hatred towards me and towards my son and towards my spirit, or, you can humble yourself and cry out to cry out to me. And we know, of course, that the only way that a person can humble themselves is to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made alive to Christ. Are there other sins beyond that that I would say God almost that God always invariably confronts prior to someone coming to faith? I don't think that we can say with certainty that there is, because there are lots of stories of people who um 
who live terrible, horrible homosexual lifestyles or sure. heterosexual sinful lifestyles um, or lifestyles where they're, you know, people who are in gangs that continue to murder people even after they've come to Christ. We hear about these stories. And then there's the stuff that's less sort of less flashy, if you want to sort of put it in a crass sense. Like I said, like my ongoing idolatry in violation of the second commandment or people who continually disregard the Sabbath and the importance of honoring the Sabbath and sanctifying right. it. So God doesn't necessarily do that, but there's lots of stories of people coming out of those sort of more grievous sins. And then after being a Christian for a little while and participating in the life of the church, that's when they start to realize after they sit under more of the teaching of God's word, that's when they start to realize that these things need to be addressed. So I think probably ordinarily speaking, when a murderer comes to faith in Christ, they stop murdering people. Um, when a, a sexual sinner, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, comes to faith in Christ, they recognize that as sin and they are confronted by that. But so much of that, I think, largely depends on whether or not their ministers are confronting them on yes. the sin. Right? We don't know. We have no idea what the case would be if these ministers had said to these people, this person, prior to baptism, you really need to publicly repent of this sin and you need to stop immediately. Like move out, whatever you got to do, get out of that situation, stop immediately. There's no exceptions to this. We don't know whether that person would have rejected that and refused to be baptized and then repudiated the faith that they had claimed to confess or whether they would have said, yes, yeah, uh, if that's what, if that's what being a Christian means, then that's what I want. We don't know for sure. Maybe that conversation did happen. I don't know. Um, But I don't think apart from the sin of unbelief and the sin of hatred towards God that there is anything that we can say God always invariably necessarily confronts. Over the course of our lives, yes, God always confronts all of our sin. But even in those circumstances, it's not until we're glorified in the last day or until until we are in God's presence in heaven that our souls are made perfectly holy. So there are some sins in our life and um, definitely sin in general in our life that is left unconfronted and unrepentant until the last day of our lives. Um, I, I think that the church does have this tendency whether it's um, kind of the sins that we look at now as like the chief sins of our culture, which definitely we should focus on those because that's what our culture is throwing at us, or whether it's other things in other eras, um, we have a tendency to focus on like one particular sin and think that's the measurement of repentance. But there's there's no biblical passage that says this sin will always be repented of prior to prior to um, a confession of faith. We just don't have scripture that, that details that. And that's what makes this so tricky because I think on one hand we could say there certainly seemed to be a failure of good shepherding here in terms of guiding this person and what it means to be a Christian. And at the same time, I think we perhaps could make the argument that there's something strange about somebody professing to be a Christian and desiring baptism if I'm reading this question correctly, proudly advertising or creating this third category that they're a homosexual Christian. Right. So this is where there is some nuance. And I like what you said before, kind of jog something into my mind or jog my memory rather. And that was that, you know, God's word is clear that true repentance cannot be manufactured from an unregenerate soul. So like faith, repentance is a gift from God. So I was just looking in Acts 11, because I was remembering that you know Peter is reporting to the church about the conversion of the Gentiles. And I've always found this interesting. And this is from uh, chapter 11, 17, and 18. He says, If then God gave the same gift to them, that is the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God. So they worshiped him at this moment, saying, Then the Gentiles also to, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Yeah. And then Second uh, Timothy as well, Paul writing to Timothy saying, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So what are like lovely passages that again, in, in a sense say, it, it's not as if I think that the God, the message there is don't worry about your repentance, let God do it for you. But the sense that God in his loving kindness inserts this acknowledgement, but even gives us the, the force, the energy, so to speak, to see and then to proclaim that we need to repent. And it's not a repentance that just says, man, I did some really bad stuff that makes me feel bad and right. I want to avoid punishment. 
but it's the sense of, like you said, you union with Christ means that you really are so in love with him, so want to have harmony in relationship with him, that obedience flows out of this kind of natural understanding that that is what it means to love somebody. To love somebody is to obey them. And obeying right. God is certainly repenting of the things that you've done in such a way that it's not just placating and giving a quick, I'm sorry, but saying, I want to turn away from that stuff. And like you said, that doesn't mean that we do we turn away from it perfectly. Sometimes, unfortunately, we fall back and we turn back to it. But I yeah. think it's having this, I want to, even if I want to want to, and God, will you come? I believe, help my unbelief. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't say this lightly, um, but it sounds to me like this person who's emailed into us probably needs to start looking for a new church. And the reason I say that is is sort of there's a plurality of reasons is um, one, if this is a church that claims to be reformed, um, then it is very vastly betraying its identity because the idea that, right. um, you know, as you mentioned, the idea that we can assess a person's um, spiritual life and their regenerate state based on the fact that they came forward during like an altar call. Um, is very contrary to reform sensibilities about how how do we how do we assess whether or not someone is in the faith. Um, so there's that that there's an element. Um, if this is an Arminian church, there's nothing wrong with going to an Arminian church um, if that is where you are exercising prudence and believe that God has placed you for a variety of reasons. Um, there's nothing wrong with going to a church outside of the Reformed tradition. I think in general, it's better to try to go to a church that is within the Reformed tradition because um, the gospel is preached more clearly and more purely in those contexts, just to be straightforward. Um, but this sounds like an Arminian church. Um, it sounds like there's some confusion about what constitutes uh, justification, what constitutes repentance, and how those things interplay with each other. And I think we'll talk a little bit about the actual logical relationships here in a second. Um, but it sounds like our our listener is in a church that has sort of um, assumed a uh, sort of the, the Zane Hodges free grace model. Right. right. As long as this person intellectually assents to the fact that Jesus is the Lord and that we need salvation, um, then that person is saved, regardless of whether they persist in their sin or not. Um, that's not the gospel. I mean, just just to be straightforward, that's not the gospel, because the gospel includes not only that we are saved from our sins, but that we are made righteous, that we we are given Christ's righteousness and that that really changes us. Right. Yes. So it's important for our listener to really think through this. I, I don't want to be the one that makes that decision for you. I think if, if you are considering that and you probably should, then you should find a good solid reformed pastor that, you know, and trust who can help you navigate these things. Um, and you should be communicating with your pastor about your concerns and that you're not sure you can stay in a context like this. Um, but I do think that in a situation like this, we talked about this, uh, I don't remember which episode it was, but we had a, a question uh, from a listener on one of the question casts who talked about this. She was in the RCA, I think, and was talking about how um, they were going to be ordaining, possibly ordaining women elders. And we right. talked about how um, the the church that ordains women elders ceases to be a church because they no longer have a um, an appropriate way to exercise church discipline. And in this case, it looks as though this church may have become derelict in their responsibilities to exercise church yes. discipline. And if they're not church, if they're not exercising church discipline, that's one strike. They've improperly administered the sacrament of baptism or the ordinance of baptism. That's two strikes. Right. There's only three marks of the church. So it may be the case that our, our listener is not even in a, a true church at this point. Um, but don't make that decision lightly. Don't don't let my voice, my silly voice on a silly podcast, don't let my voice be the final arbiter of that. Seek out a pastor who can help you navigate that. But I think it's something to consider. I want to affirm this particular listener because I know that they have been involved in this church for quite some time. I think they even helped plant this particular congregation. And so I know that they've been having ongoing conversations and I think part of like that pushback, it was just them trying to understand why was this taking place and some right. of the information they've disclosed has come out of that conversation. That is absolutely the right way to start that process. Yeah. Oh yeah, and for sure. So I really think there's a lot to admire there. And this is in some ways not, unfortunately, not something new because throughout church history, there have been those who have preached a quote unquote gospel of like e easy believism and cheap grace. One that just right. required no repentance on the part of the converts. 
that pseudo gospel is really thriving in a lot of churches today. And it's yeah. giving false oh, yeah. assurance of faith to people who have no interest in obedience, holiness, or sanctification. And so I think your advice is good. And that is, I think it's partly to be aware that this is probably not the right long-term place for you, but that decision needs to happen kind of more at a local level and with a lot more guidance than just you or I. Yeah. But let's, yeah. there's one more question as part of this particular email that I'm saving, I'm purposely saving to the end because it's, it's a good wrap up, but yeah. like, let's before get into we go like on to the, that, I want to say one more thing though. Yeah, no, no, that's what I'm saying. Let's get into like the logical stuff. Okay. But before we say that, if there are denominational channels for you to pursue this, um, with other levels. So like if you're just using this as an example, I don't know whether this is the church or not. If you're a part of the um, evangelical free church in America, right? There are denominational arbitration channels to pursue if you have conflicts with your minister um, or if you're, if this is a Presbyterian church, you know, God forbid, um, you know, try to um, try to pursue those through other channels. Um, so Jesse just held a card up to me, but he held it below the, the camera and I can't see that. Oh, okay. So, um, I don't know if he's wanting me to say that. I don't think I'm going to though, because <laughs> I, I don't want to throw any particular denomination on the bus, but I get the sense from the card that Jesse held up to me. And just from the organization of this, that, that this probably isn't a situation where there's a lot of denominational oversight. Right. Right. Um, but if for some reason there is, you know, you mentioned this is a church plant. So maybe go to um, the pastor at the church that helped to start this plant. Usually church plants in this denomination have um, like a sending church and that there's right. probably still relationships. Those are some good venues to try to get some help to deal with this situation as well. All right. So are you ready for some logical stuff now? Let's do it. All right. Go ahead. That was the most awkward segment we've ever done, by the way. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, we've had a lot of like really poor transitions and really, really terrible, awkward attempts to communicate non-verbally with each other. That was, that was in the top five of most awkward. This is real life. Well, I, I wanted you to, cause you were talking about like the denominational influence and, and how that, that was important, how that context yeah. might apply here. So I was like trying, I couldn't tell though. I couldn't see it. So I was trying to hold it up to you just so you know, so you didn't go like in too many weird directions. So, but we probably made it way more weird, but I think it's right not to yeah. disclose what the denomination is. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say this to our listener in the denomination that you are in, there is probably no official channels. Uh, for you to pursue, but you should still contact people in that denomination to possibly yeah, help Im- influence this pastor to reconsider this this decision. Because I know that this denomination would not approve of baptizing an openly practicing homosexual. Um, right. But but there's no official oversight um, that I'm aware of in that denomination. It's not even really a denomination. So right. yeah, exactly. All right. So All right. finally, let's do some got? theology. Yeah. What do you got in logical order? What was it that you wanted to go with there? So it, when we talk about logical order, and this is important for this conversation because um, the relationships between different steps or different different um, components of salvation or of, of justification of, of, of the ordo salutis is really important. So for example, if you reverse repentance and put it prior to justification, um, then what you have is someone who is still dead in their sins, still mm-hmm. under the condemnation of faith or the condemnation of sin, who is now taking spiritual steps towards the good. So you have right. someone dead in their sins who is is actually started the process of sanctification prior, logically prior to the fact that they've been justified. So it's just important to get those logical steps kind of in sync a little bit. Yeah, it is. And this is why it's why we spent so much time talking about it and why it's become increasingly important to me. And I've really been convicted about it because I love, again, I love this email because this is an outworking of getting it in the wrong order, really. Right. This is what yeah. happens. So it's not just like this innocuous, we can kind of be armchair theologians and we, we can choose not to really consider these things and think about them, or we can choose to, and if we want to, if we have a penchant for this kind of thing or a turn of mind for theology, then you can think about it. This is really everybody's domain. It should be every Christian's domain to understand this, but especially, of right. course, those who are leading in the household of God. Yeah. And so let's, let's, um, I'm going to run through, uh, what I would say is kind of the properly reformed ordo salutis, right? So, um, there is usually some sort of contrition for sin. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe not. 
Then there's regeneration, which is the point in which God um, renews a person's will. He builds, creates faith in the person. Um, And then from regeneration comes union with Christ. Because once we have faith, faith brings about union with Christ. And then out of that union with Christ, not caused by that union with Christ, but out of the context of that union with, with Christ, we are justified through faith and also right. sanctified through faith by Christ. And so it's really important because sanctification is, if you were to break it down, it's the mortification of sin and the vivification of righteousness. And repentance falls under that second one, that as we become more and more righteous, we recognize our sin and we walk away from it. So we become more righteous and in that act of becoming more righteous, uh, by the power of the spirit, the spirit makes us more righteous. As we live that out, we turn more and more away from our sin. So if you think about, um, if you think about two points, right, you have point A and point B and we're somewhere in the middle. If point A is sin and point B is God, as we turn away from sin and turn towards God, the more centered on God we are, the more 100% behind us sin is. And so the Christian life is this, this ongoing act of turning towards God, which, which we call repentance, right? Martin Luther, I think it was the first, it's one of the first 10 of the 95 Theses, I don't remember which one, but basically said repentance is not a one-time act. It's the, the life right. of a Christian is a life of repentance. And so by definition, as we turn towards God, as we grow in holiness, we turn away from sin. And so it's important for us because if we get that wrong, like MacArthur does, and we make repentance a component of faith, then what you've done is you made sanctification a part of the instrumental means of grace. And so while we don't want to swing all the way to the error that this church seems to be making, which is sort of the Zane Hodges, you know, Keswick theology, higher life theology, we also don't want to swing so far as where MacArthur in the height of the Lordship controversy, right? The first edition of the gospel, according to Jesus, we don't want to swing so far that now we've actually made a legalistic mistake and, and think that because this person still has sin in their life, because they haven't fully yielded themselves to Christ, um, that they are not justified or that they may not be justified. Right. So as we said, no one is fully yielded to Christ. That's my main concern with the language that's still out there, still on John MacArthur's website, is this language of full surrender, complete surrender. Nobody on this side of death is fully surrendered to Jesus Impossible. Christ. Right. And so we have to be cautious to sort of, I don't want to paint it like it's the golden mean, because it's really not, it's not a matter of finding the midpoint between antinomianism and, and legalism. It's really, you know, the answer to the answer to antinomianism is not to be a little more legalistic. And the answer to legalism is not to be a little more antinomian. The answer to both (laughs) is to properly understand the relationship between the law and the gospel, which both Zane Hodges, who had no relationship between the law and the gospel, and John MacArthur, who collapsed the law and the gospel together. But the real answer is to recognize that the law and the gospel are distinct from each other. But you can't have the law without the gospel, that's condemnation and death. And you can't have the gospel without the law. So to, to thread the needle on this, you really have to understand that um, regeneration, justification, and sanctification all are God's works. And that it's we're the recipients of the benefits of those works, not the ones who bring those about. Right. I mean, sanctification, like you said, part of that is it's a progressive lifelong work of God that that basically frees us from sin and makes us more like Christ. And I think, again, what we're talking about here is what about those situations, though, when there is a you know supposed Christian who is standing in purposeful disobedience and rebellion to that sin? Can those two you know, quantities coexist? And I think what we're definitely saying is no. And right. so the question that kind of wraps all this up that the listener posed, which is, which is kind of interesting, I, I liked where this went. I think this is at least intellectually interesting to consider is, do you think this situation is it heresy? Um, I would say no, probably, probably not. Uh, without speaking to the pastor and understanding the actual specific theological underpinnings of why they're making the decisions they are and what theology is undergirding it, 
um, it may be, I mean, everybody's a theologian, right? right? So it may be that they don't even realize that this is a theological position that they hold. It um, could just be theological the, error. Right. If the undergirding position is um, that this person has undergone a particular act of walking an aisle and said particular words, and those words have obligated God to save them, then absolutely 100% that is heresy. That that's that's a real crass form of works righteousness that even Rome would look at and say, yeah, that's that's not the gospel, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, but that's probably not what's going on. There's probably just some confusion about the relationship between repentance and justification and faith and um, and what it is that God does in the life of a sinner in order to bring them to justification. Um, we do have a tendency, particularly in um, sort of the we might call minimalistic Calvinistic um, or like like Tulip Baptist, not to slam on Baptist, but the, the Baptist contingency that just sort of has Tulip as their only elements of Reformed theology, there is a tendency to swing towards that antinomian side because it's like all of a sudden the free grace of God is present and it's like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do with this, right? The two, kind of the Tulian Tavidian approach to salvation is that God is so gracious that um, once he's justified us, that whatever happens after that doesn't matter. Um, that's a little bit of a caricature, but not all that much. That isn't necessarily heresy. That's probably just someone who's got some category confusion. Um, right. I would really doubt that this pastor is like formally saying, yeah, the law is the law is abrogated. There's no law anymore, which would be heresy. I just don't think that's probably what's going on. That's my perspective as well. I think we always have to be careful with throwing around that H-bomb because there's plenty of theological error. At any given time, we are probably all committing some theological error. And so when we speak about heresy, we're talking about like an active stance against known orthodoxy. Yeah. And it's yeah. possible that's happening here. But like you said, pr probabilistically speaking, it's probably low. So it's still worth the conversation. If that were happening, I think we both agree, like, do not walk, run to get away yeah. from that oh, situation. Yeah. If, if the pastor is espousing formal heresy consciously and recognizes that this is contrary to the historic testimony of the church, don't go back on Sunday. Don't, don't go back. Right. I mean, that's as strong as I can say it. Like it would be better for you not to go to church this coming Sunday than to go somewhere where someone is a known, a known and no, and like conscious heretic, like stay home, worship with your family, um, do your best to find another church as soon as you can. Right. Regroup. Um, that just probably isn't what's going on. Yeah. It's unlikely it's, there might be a small non-zero chance, but that would certainly come to light in form of conversation, which in fact may right. be happening. And by this point, yeah. this may have already been resolved, but I think that's like good advice for anybody who perhaps is seeing potential conflict or just has questions about what's happening in the church, that should first be sorted out with the pastor and the elders. And we should be gracious to just say as a starting point, it could just be theological error or confusion of terms, like you said. Right. Or, and this is not in any way a chastisement to the person who wrote in. The way that, the I haven't read this email, but it sounds like this is being handled in a respectful, submissive, appropriate way. But it could also be that the pastor knows something that you don't. Sure. That's certainly possible that behind closed doors, this person has talked about how they recognize that this is something that they are going to need to work out and they just haven't been able to do it yet. Um, so it's, it's certainly possible that there's more to the, it's, I would say that there is a almost hundred percent chance that there is more to the story than what you see up front on a Sunday morning. Um, it doesn't sound like this listener has gone into this with their eyes closed and they've had enough discussions to know that this isn't, this isn't just something that appears to be bad and actually isn't. Um, I think that right. they, they seem like they know enough and have had enough conversations to recognize that something is off, but that's in situations well. like this, it's possible that there's just more going on than you recognize. Well, that's what makes these things so difficult, right? Is when you go about it the right way, you're having conversation. And I think my sense from the listener is that almost against hope, they were realizing that something was really wrong here. And then yeah. when they started to have the conversation that was confirmed and because they love the church and they love the people, this has been a source of great heartache. I, I, I yeah. get the sense like they're going about it the right way and that they don't want to leave. Their inclination isn't first just to run and get out without getting more information. And that's why this is causing such deep pain. And so they're yeah. really asking like, maybe though, the important thing to do is to 
to leave, to get out because they want to know like, is this heretical or not? Is this the kind of thing that is worth breaking fellowship with this particular church? And it very well could be. And and this is like why it's important to continue to think. And I really affirm anybody and confirm again, this listener who is willing to take all this stuff, metabolize it by way of the scriptures, pass it through the sieve of the full counsel of God, go kind of in humility to the eldership and the pastor and say, I just want to understand what's going on here, because that really is what we should all be doing with everything that happens in the church. I mean, that doesn't mean like you call your pastor up every week, but it does mean that even when your pastor is preaching to you, that again, like good Bereans, we're always going and testing everything. So, I mean, kudos to them to really being serious about that. We should all be more serious about that. Yeah. And this is the last thing I'll say before we kind of wrap up. Um, This is going to sound a little counterintuitive because as I've said in the past, like the peace and purity of the local church, there are not a lot of things that I place a higher premium on than the peace and purity of the local church. Um, There are a lot of theological stances that I will gladly submit to the elders on and just say, you know what, this is important, but it's more important for me to be submissive and obedient and maintain the peace of the church. Right. This, if this is what it sounds like it is, this is not one of those things. So if you are leaving a church, you join a Lutheran church, even though you're reformed and you decide you can't deal with the Lutheran church anymore, you should leave quietly and peaceably. If this is a situation where the church started off strong in the gospel, right? Knowing the denomination that this is, or the association that this is, this person, this pastor probably had a fair amount of theological examination, not quite to the level of like an ordination exam, but a fair amount of theological um, assessment and had to fit into a particular camp. So it sounds like this probably represents a deviation from that original state right. that at some point this person affirmed the doctrines of grace and understood them, was able to articulate them and through, through a variety of processes has sort of departed from that. This is not the kind of thing you leave respectfully, but you don't leave quietly because this is, this is a gospel issue. This is a matter of a, a, I won't say a false gospel, but a seriously deficient gospel that's being preached to the point where some people who are probably not saved are being given the assurance of salvation. And that's yes. not something that's not something to joke around with. No. So when people when you're leaving, if you join a Lutheran church and you decide you don't want to be in a Lutheran church anymore because you you can't deal with their view on the sacraments, right? Or myself, I'm in a Baptist church. If at some point I decided I really needed to be a part of a Presbyterian church, when people asked me why I was leaving, I would say, well, you know, I just, I just really feel like, although I affirm that this church is a gospel-believing church, uh, I really need to go somewhere that holds my views of baptism. In right. this case, when people ask you if, you if you're leaving, you should tell them, I'm leaving because I don't feel like the gospel is properly preached here. So you leave respectfully, but you don't leave quietly in this kind of situation. Right. At the end of the day, this really is about gospel purity. Exactly. And that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Yeah, it is. So it's worth worrying about. It's worth thinking about. It's worth processing. So again, I think we, we both certainly affirm that. I, again, anybody who wants to shoot us an email or leave us a voicemail, we welcome that because so many times these conversations are, I love having these conversations with you, Tony, but they're, they're such just a form of encouragement and of edification to me. So I'm glad that we have so many wonderful listeners that brothers and sisters that are willing to interact. So if you want to email us, you can, again, our preference is that you call up the voicemail line, drop us a hot voicemail because we love to hear the voices and, and bring those into question cast. But yeah. the email address is info at reformbrotherhood.com. If people want to call us, Tony, what is that beautiful number? (laughs) 607-444-2767. Bros. That's my radio voice. I was going to say, what what was that voice that happened there? My, Um, the first caller, uh, the seventh caller gets a free pat on the back, metaphorically, (laughs) voice. You know, this is probably going to end poorly with for me, but I'm just going to go there anyway. When you were talking about leaving churches and leaving quietly or leaving loudly, for some reason, only a few people probably to get this reference. The song 50 Ways to Leave a Lover <laughs> came into my head. Are you familiar with that song? I am not. I'm this glad is, I'm not. So here's, <laughs> let, let me, let's just do a little quick, uh, like five minutes of counseling. I blame my mother for this because... I, <laughs> 
<laughs> you, oh, you I, know I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mom. You know my mother well. Uh, so for whatever reason, when we were growing up, she liked to listen to um, the radio and she listened to a lot of like 50s, 60s, 70s music. And that is a song from that era. So that whole course is like, it's just like weird rhyming of like people leaving those they love, like slip out the back, Jack, no need to be coy, Roy. You've never heard that chorus? Like it's just a no. bunch of ways to leave somebody. No, that's funny. So I was thinking like, maybe we need a song that's like 50 ways to leave your church legitimately. Yeah. I don't think that's a good <laughs> idea. I yep. think that's a bad See, idea. This is why. This is why I figured it would end poorly for me, but that's this what is as my bad mind. of an idea as walking into a bakery and being like, smells like the glory cloud in here. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm so glad I said that and that we revisited it so that this is, I've been clearly bookended on this episode yes. with just bad, bad glory cloud references. Well, this has been great, Tony. I appreciate um, your willingness to tackle one of these questions with me. And, you know, for the record, like you were totally surprised by this particular question. I at least I knew somewhat what we were going to talk about. But I love that right before we started recording, you said to me, is there anything that you would need? And I said, like, maybe we we'll want to go to the confessions. And I believe your response was. Oh, I, I pointed in my head and I said, it's all in here, brother. <laughs> In reality, it's a book that's on my desk that I bought for $12, but. Uh, I just like to think that like the catechisms and the confessions are never far from you. Like that you, you've got them on you at all times in case like you're at work and, and somebody yeah. has something. I mean, I've got the OPC's, ca- all of their confessional documents bookmarked on my phone. So I do have them with me. And I do have those sections that we talked about, about effectual calling. The I do have those part, that part memorized. So. Yeah, I know you do. You're, you're crushing yeah. that, man. I love I'm it. I'm working on it. All right. Well, well, again, this has been great. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh